we saw the only time that we would see um, black bodies or um, uh, people of color in our medical textbooks was when they were trying to pathologize something. Mm. If we were trying to see diagnosis of a particular disease, particularly sexually transmitted diseases, then that's when we began to see those quote-unquote types of people versus in our physical exam books in which we learned the art of the physical exam, there tend to be people who are fair-skinned or, or white people. Um, but I would say that now understanding the damage that that does to uh, physicians in training in terms of making these prejudice and unfair and unfounded associations between different groups and different diagnoses and different um, pathologies, we have tried to revision the way that we should be thinking about the patient and thinking about the patient as a whole and all the different things that can kind of influence the person that we see when we walk through the examination door. Uh, so in that vein, I know that myself and several colleagues have been involved in designing and implementing an anti-racism curriculum for specifically the OBGYN residents here at, um, at, in the Bronx in which we've been trying to allow them to sit with the discomfort of the history of medicine and trying to re-educate and relearn the uh, seeing people for who they are, the human aspect of medicine that I feel like sometimes gets lost because of our uh, racist history. When your dad grows up in the late 40s, early 50s, you know he's seen some shit. I mean, he was only five years old when schools got integrated. So history, information, just preparing your kids from the world for the world and the black community came down through telling stories and sharing information as ma as many times as you could, and honestly, it was just meant to keep us safe. I think that the great thing about that is we learn things from our black community. We learn things from our families that we don't necessarily learn in schools and books, but we learn about things that affected them then that will continue to affect us now. Sounds a lot like critical race theory, but you didn't hear it from me. Um, so some of those things are great. Like there are things about Charles Richard Drew and Henrietta Lacks and the Tuskegee experiment that I may not have, my brother may not have learned in school, but we certainly did learn it from our dad. Unfortunately, with good comes bad. So with the good information, we also get some of the fear and some of the mistrust. And I think one area that we do see that quite a bit in the black community in terms of the fear and the mistrust that gets passed down is with the healthcare industry and with trusting medical professionals and trusting the medical industry as a whole. I, I don't think until I read the Henrietta Lacks books that I understood the extent of it. And it takes kind of experiencing things on your own and doing your own research and getting your own education to make you a little bit more, I guess, not sympathetic, but understanding of where people who are afraid and mistrustful come from. So if you're not familiar with these things, I wanted to share them with you before we jump into our discussion with our a Black physician that we know, a Black physician that we know that is specifically addressing race in the medical profession and went through, had some experiences with race while he was in medical school and 
um, some of that does inform the anti-racism work that he's working on today. So before we jump into our guests, let's talk a little bit about where some of this fear and mistrust in the community may come from. And of course, this is only two examples. For the two that I have, there's probably a thousand more that haven't even been documented, but these are two that I think are probably the most common and most prominent in our industry, in our industry, I mean, in our community. So let's start with the um, Tuskegee experiment, and I'm going to read from the National Library of Medicine on that, just so you have more um, grounded information versus what my commentary will say. And the second piece will be read from the Johns Hopkins School of Medicine website for the um, Henrietta Lacks case. So let's start here in 1932, which... In the history of our country, is not that long ago. I mean, for us now, it seems long ago because there's a one in front of that number, but whew, scary times. In 1932, in Macon County, Alabama, the U.S. Public Health Service started a study of 400 African-American men with latent or late syphilis who had not been treated. Men without syphilis, about 200, were also enrolled as controlled participants. The study originally designed to last six to eight months, but it turned into a long-term study that continued for 40 years. The arsenic and bismuth compounds used for treatment at the time were not offered to the men. When penicillin became available in the 1940s and 50s, this was also withheld. So the scary thing about the Tuskegee experiments was, number one, the Participants were never given informed consent. They never knew what the experiments were for, or rather they were lied to. I think they were told it was for blood experiments and not for syphilis. But either way, they did not consent to be studied. They certainly did not consent to not receive available treatment at the time. And they certainly did not consent to not receive improved treatment when it became later. So the fact that a good number of these men died from receiving zero treatment at all. They were just being studied as freaking unethical and scary as shit. So then let's talk about Miss Henry, Mrs. Excuse me, Henrietta Lacks. So in 1951, a young mother of five named Henrietta Lacks visited the Johns Hopkins hospital complaining of vaginal bleeding. The Johns Hopkins hospital was one of only a few hospitals to treat poor African-Americans. Upon examination, renowned gynecologist Dr. Howard Jones discovered a large malignant tumor on her cervix. As medical records show, Mrs. Lacks began undergoing radium treatments for cervical cancer, which was the best medical treatment available at the time. A sample of her cancer cells retrieved during a biopsy were sent to Dr. George Gay's nearby tissue lab. For years, Dr. Gay, a prominent cancer and virus researcher, had been collecting cells from all patients who came to the Johns Hopkins Hospital with cervical cancer, but each sample quickly died in Dr. Gay's lab. What Dr. Gay would soon discover was that Mrs. Lack's cells were unlike any of the others he had ever seen. Where other cells would die, Mrs. Cells Lacks doubled every 20 to 24 hours. Today, these incredible cells, nicknamed HeLa cells from the first two letters of her first and last names are used to study the effects of toxins, drugs, hormones, and viruses on the growth of cancer cells without experimenting on humans. They have been used to test the effects of radiation and poisons, to study the human genome, to learn more about how viruses work, and played a crucial role in the development of the polio and COVID-19 vaccines. 
Although Mrs. Lax ultimately passed away on October 4, 1951, at the age of 31, her cells continued to impact the world. Johns Hopkins applauds and regularly participates in efforts to raise awareness of the life and story of Henrietta Lacks. Having reviewed our interactions with Henrietta Lacks and with the Lacks family over, over more than 50 years, we found that Johns Hopkins could have and should have done more to inform and work with members of Henrietta Lacks family out of respect for them, their privacy, and their personal interest. Though the collection and use of Henrietta Lacks cells and research was an acceptable and legal practice in the late 1950s, such a practice would not happen today without a patient's consent. Freaking scary. But we do know that doctors like Dr. Calvin Lambert Jr. are on the case. So without further ado... Dr. Lambert generously shared his time with us while he was on a break. And so he's recording with us through his AirPods outside of the hospital. So his audio is a little bit lighter than ours. Um, you may have to toggle between our loud voices and his soft voice. We apologize in advance as soon as we get some technology that will allow us to um, manage our guest voices. We will certainly do that. But for now, we appreciate your patience as you listen to this episode. Thank you. Well, well, hi, Dr. Lambert. Welcome to Siblings Take On. And I guess our very first inaugural episode of Siblings Take On, we're going to take on the relationship between Black Americans and the healthcare system. But first, since this is a siblings-based podcast, tell us about your siblings. Oh my gosh, you want me to jump right into siblings? Yeah, um, yeah. Well, you know, I am one of six. So we have a whole clan. Good night. Um, fortunately, we were blessed to have uh, an even split. So three boys, three girls. So it was fabulous. Um, I say that all now having a lot of hindsight because growing up, it definitely wasn't all like sunshine and rainbows. <laughs> there definitely was some, uh, I guess, tension growing up in, in the household in terms of trying to interact with people who had different personalities, different interests, um, and, you know, just coming into our own space uh, while growing up with each other. But I would never, ever, ever uh, regret not having my siblings because... <laughs> We grew a lot from each other um, and from those relationships that we forged. So I am number two. We're going from oldest to youngest in the line of six. The oldest sister, uh, Maria, she's in the Air Force. Um, I would say that she and I are the closest in age. Well, I wouldn't say that we're the closest, but we have learned to love each other over the years. <laughs> um, and then after me would be my brother, Chris, who's also in the uh, Him and I have this, uh, I guess, competitive spirit when it comes to basketball. But whenever he comes over, he's definitely taller than me. I just love the way our relationship has blossomed in terms of going beyond the realm of just being competitive to just being each other's support system. Hmm. After him, uh, Richard, I love the guy. Um, and he is currently getting his thing in nursing. 
Then after him, my sister Amanda, who I recently dropped off in Providence, Rhode Island yesterday, who's going to be starting her freshman year at Johnson & Wales, interested in culinary arts. And then lastly, the youngest, my sister Melanie, who um, is probably the closest to me in terms of ambition, who is applying to medical school right now and is just a ball of sass. <laughs> um, but uh, love her to death too. So five other individuals with five different personalities, crazy upbringing, uh, lots of energy in the household, lots of fights, lots of laughter. Uh, I could talk on and on and on about the many different memories, but um, that's the clan. I love it. Yeah, I think I was just listening listening to a podcast where this um, the host, she has a brother and they were talking about, oh yeah, we grew up in the same house. And the doctor that was talking to them was like, well, no, you had the same household, like you grew up in the same structure, but your parents were different because you as the first child got a very different um, set of parents versus the last child had a very different set of parents. So I imagine <laughs> your parents <laughs> kind of, you know, and you, you change and your experience in the family is different based on kind of your birth order. So, but I like that you came out of it <laughs> with, with happy memories. I would say that, um, hell yeah to that. We call Melanie the last one because she definitely had a completely different iteration of my parents. I don't think she got her I'm not to curse. I can't curse. Oh yeah, please. No, please curse. She, she, um, um, she, I don't think she got her ass whooped <laughs> or if she did, they use different weapons. But, uh, but I would say, yeah, my parents definitely, I think that with each sibling, they learned a different approach. Mm -hmm. um, so by Melanie, the last one, they were like seasoned veterans of the game and knew how much energy they needed to exert to get the results <laughs> that they needed. Yep. Versus putting all this effort into grounding and talking and butt whippings and all of that, mm -hmm. and not really getting the highest yield. So yeah, I guess it's something that you do learn as you get past number two. Yep. And as you know, my my little brother is not only the youngest; he's also the only boy. So to say that he got away with a lot of stuff that me and my sister didn't get away with is an understatement, but I will digress and turn it over to Jared for the next question. Yeah, I mean, I did get away with murder, so I'm not going to stand and shake it. Um, <laughs> I got away with literally everything. Um, but yeah, before we dive really into our, <laughs> our, our, our questions here, can you give our listeners a little um, bit about your medical background and, 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 and what you do? Sure. And uh, at any point, if you guys, if I'm not coming in clear, just let me know. But as far as my medical background, I am, I guess, as of Tuesday, a um, maternal fetal medicine physician, which is a um, OBGYN who subspecializes in high-risk pregnancies, um, uh, birthing individuals who may have medical uh, complications or medical conditions that can complicate their pregnancy. So my job is to um, provide them with the um, utmost equitable care in helping them navigate pregnancy and kind of thinking about different ways in which their medical history can influence the development of their pregnancy and also influence the trajectory of their medical conditions and how we can arrive at this beautiful journey called pregnancy together safely um, for both mom and me. In a nutshell. 
that sounds extremely complicated and stressful. <laughs> um, I could go into further detail, but you know, like you said, it's it's kind of complicated. Yeah, no, I mean, um, obviously, I've known you our 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 entire lives, so I I, I know where where you work and uh, the the area that 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 you chose. Um, but do you see a higher uh, number of patients in the minority um, in the minority demographic? Is that primarily because of where you are, or is it, or is that just what your field kind of lends itself to? I mean, I think that due to um, just the historical makeup and historical fabric of the socioeconomic infrastructure in society that certain groups are significantly disadvantaged and therefore they end up having to bear the brunt of a lot of these complications with respect to pregnancies, with respect to access to healthcare, which can also further compound the prognosis of whatever condition they may have. And that definitely falls on the backs of um, people of color. I particularly have an interest in being an advocate and being a voice and being a, a provider that empowers those communities who have been historically disenfranchised. So I sought out opportunities as a uh, medical student and now a doctor to really invest in working with those communities and finding ways which I can serve those communities specifically, trying to, granted, can't be done in the span of a, a decade or two decades the uh, injustices that those groups face, but working with them in, in terms of ways to increase access and try to improve outcomes for those particular groups. And so because of that particular interest, I sought out to provide care for um, that particular population and look to find different programs, different communities, different hospitals that serve those vulnerable populations because that's just something I'm very passionate about. And do you have a sense as to why vulnerable populations and, and us as, you know, Black Americans or different cultures have reservations about going to seek healthcare? I mean, I think that we can look back historically to the way that um, groups were disenfranchised with respect to access to care, how certain groups were uh, essentially lied to with respect to um, experimentation in the United States, specifically the Tuskegee Airmen Group, with respect to the way that the treatment of syphilis was um, denied to those groups, despite the evidence that we had in terms of the impact it had on patients who were exposed to syphilis, and just also understanding the, the I guess, the racial dynamics between uh, white and black people, and how we're, we were essentially in an environment in which people didn't want us to be a part of this and would do everything that they could to essentially exclude us. Mm. Whether that's denying us rights to access to education, denying us access to um, quality care. So I think that those examples that were more, I guess, blatant, historically speaking, but have continued to be pervasive in more subtle ways today it's hard for certain groups to trust their providers, given that history, given that trend that they see, um, which I'm sure gets perpetuated as 
storytelling happens across different generations about families, interactions, and experiences with healthcare providers. So I think that historically speaking, just based on our track record, I can't fault um, black and brown folks for not trusting uh, people within the healthcare system and always kind of arriving at the doctor's door with this degree of skepticism in terms of is this person going to be have my best interest at mind and do I need to be concerned about whether or not uh, I'm going to be uh, mistreated or uh, dismissed in any way, shape, or form. So uh, I think that it's warranted and it's unfortunate that that's the burden that um, black and brown folks, especially um, black folks, have to uh, carry when it comes to interfacing with the healthcare system in the U.S. So you you mentioned the Tuskegee Airmen and various things that create pause for minorities to um, to to seek medical care. Uh, along with that comes the rub some dirt on it, uh, go have some Robitussin kind of mentality to avoid going to the doctor. Uh, how, how are you hoping to mediate or, or just yeah. encouraging them to actually go seek medical care because right. you know things are different than how they were 50, 40 years ago? Yeah, no, I think that's a very uh, important question. And I think that that's a problem that many people face today. And again, I don't want to sit here and think that I have the panacea for this because this is something that's been entrenched in society for centuries. And so for us to be able to snap our fingers and come up with a solution like that would make us essentially um, appear to be naive in understanding the gravity of the, the history of this distrust. I would say that one thing that I've tried to bring into the space, that space being um, the examination room or any clinical encounter, is providing an opportunity to see the individual for who they are and understanding where they're coming from. Because we all are informed by our lived experiences. There are many things that we bring to the table that is important for us to be able to process, to digest, and to hold space for, and then understand how we can work with whatever the patient is bringing, whatever the patient's experience has, to developing a plan that we can say with confidence that the patient would agree on and also be willing to try. So for example, I had a patient who recently um, learned of having uh, diabetes in her pregnancy, and uh, she had come to me with uh, understanding that most of the information that she was going to seek out was going to come from the internet and from other resources, from family members. And I think that if I just was completely dismissive of, dismissive of her perspective in relying on the internet and her family for medical information, then our opportunity to engage in any type of meaningful dialogue would have ended there. But what I tried to do is ask her, what is it that you know about why you're here today and how can we work together to get to a point in which you feel empowered to really work on keeping things under control and, impact, and impacting in a positive way um, some of these approaches to control your diabetes. And that changed the dynamic, that changed the discussion because we were able to talk about some of the things that she learned and or heard about and I was able to dispel 
or confirm some of those things with information that I had as a medical professional. And we ended up developing, a, I think, a very important therapeutic relationship and kind of completely eliminated this patient-provider hierarchy that has been traditional in medicine and sometimes to a fault. Um, but I think that if you create spaces in which you can align yourself with patient values and also make sure that you're pre preserving their voice in these spaces, I think that that's one way to slowly earn their trust and to make them feel like a partner in this versus a I'm the doctor, you're the patient, do as I say, period kind of dynamic that clearly has not bode well and, and also continues to perpetuate the distrust in those communities. That's a good answer. It actually leads into my next question here. Um, you want to preserve their voice, but if their voice is a WebMD search, uh, how does that either help you, does it either help you or hurt you when WebMD says you've got XYZ diagnosis and basically you're going to die in two weeks? It does make it quite challenging because, again, um, they have access to a wealth of information on the internet. But arguably, the approach that one can take is understanding that we may not necessarily be aware of where some of that information comes from. And so the opportunity for us to have this dialogue is to be able to discuss some of the findings on the research from the patient's end versus information that I have and try to work together to come to some kind of consensus to say that, hey, um, some of this information may be accurate, but some of this information may not be accurate. And I'm always going to, by framing it in the idea that you're always going to be operating in the best interest of the patient, I think that you can begin to try to um, really restructure the way that patients look at access to information in the internet differently because um, again you can google anything but sometimes it may not be coming from the most reliable uh, sources which could put the patient at risk or cause harm to the patient if they truly believe that that's um, legitimate that they're reading but i also would say that it's definitely not um, an easy solution it's definitely something that we're continuing to try to do better um, with and I think that as we begin to see the evolution of social media we need to make sure that we as physicians begin to think about how we can carve out a significant space in that so that we're balancing the information that exists for the patients out there. There's a website that I follow called Because of Them We Can and they feature a lot of innovative things that that black people are doing in the community in a bunch of different areas. And one of the things I saw was that there was a medical student who created a book that showed um, different things on like black skin, because I think all of your medical books, you know, have yeah. everybody has the same color skin and it's not ours. So do you have specific training to address the needs of diverse populations in medical school? Um, I would say that we, I guess due to the most recent awakening or social awakening in our country with respect to um, racism and anti-racism, that we begin to see a sudden shift in the way that medical curriculum is designed. I would say that back in my day, because I feel like now I can say back in my day, 
back <laughs> in my day um, in medical school, it, what was concerning and disheartening were that when we saw the only time that we would see um, black bodies or um, um, people of color in our medical textbooks was when they were trying to pathologize something. Mm. And we were trying to see diagnosis of a particular disease, particularly sexually transmitted diseases, and that's when we began to see those quote-unquote types of people versus in our physical exam books in which we learned the art of the physical exam, there tend to be people who are fair-skinned or, or white people. Um, but I would say that now understanding the damage that that does to uh, physicians and training in terms of making these prejudice and unfair and unfounded associations between different groups and different diagnoses and different um, pathologies, we have tried to re-envision the way that we should be thinking about the patient and thinking about the, the patient as a whole and all the different things that can kind of influence the person that we see when we walk through the examination door. Uh, so in that vein, I know that myself and several colleagues have been involved in designing and implementing an anti-racism curriculum for specifically the OBGYN residents here at, um, in the Bronx in which we've been trying to allow them to sit with the discomfort of the history of medicine and trying to re-educate and relearn the uh, seeing people for who they are, the human aspect of medicine that I feel like sometimes gets lost because of our uh, racist history. Hmm. And because of that, we have begun to slowly unlearn and relearn um, what it means to truly see patient and to be involved in their care versus kind of um, minimizing them to a diagnosis based on um, historical stereotypes that are, again, uh, essentially based in racism. I'm going to make an assumption here uh, oh, and say... Don't do that. I know, right? I know. Um, <laughs> I'm I'm gonna go ahead and say that you're you are one of uh, very few in your medical class in your med, in your med school class. Um, how did your representation of uh, black and brown people in medical school impact your overall learning experience with your classmates? With being the only or one of the few? One of the few, yeah. Are you are you a few or are you the only? In my medical school class, I would say that of the one ten, it's probably make up maybe ten percent of that. Wow. Um, so I mean, but that's uh, those are historical. Those are pretty much trends consistent with other medical schools across the country. Yeah, out of one hundred and ten people, there was eleven of them, eleven that looked like you. That's a alarming number. Yeah. <laughs> Um, and what would be even more alarming is the number of folks who actually graduated with me. Um, just kind of thinking about the, the structure of the institution and how it may not necessarily be designed to think about resources in a, uh, a fair, equitable sense to ensure that every person from every background has a chance to succeed. Uh, but what I will say is that getting into walking into the doors of medical school, it's its intimidating, right? You're, again, I just said that I was one of few um, in a sea of individuals who are coming from different 
privileges, different opportunities, and so immediately you have the sense of imposter syndrome. Um, and on top of that, I told you before about how certain groups or certain certain groups or populations were portrayed in medicine and how um, their how we interact with those populations in medicine with respect to how we see them in our textbooks, how, how they're talked about in our lectures, and beginning to see whether or not, or beginning to feel as if I don't really belong, or that um, my people are in a space in which we're fighting to uh, essentially show our worth and fight loud enough for them to hear our voice so that they know that we belong and that we matter. So it was a lot to, to handle in terms of trying to kind of get out of my own head and work to doing the best that I could but you can't help but always feel like that that tokenism right you're you're one of you and therefore anything that you do anything that you say is representative of the 13 13.5% of, of black people that make up um, the United States population to date which is absolutely not true uh, but that's kind of the space that you're in and so you also feel that type of pressure to do things a certain way say things a certain way without um, being stereotyped or typecast so it, it was it was a tall order to let alone go in and do what I need to do academically also knowing the perception that people had of me because of my identity and knowing that I wanted to do right by my family everything that I represented um, so it was it was challenging but I think that what helped was that the few that were there we kind of banded together and really worked to create this sense of community that allowed us to kind of tackle some of those challenges that we face day to day and throughout the year. Um, and I think that that really helped with being able to survive. And, and with, with, with that mentality, did you ever um, feel like the, the patients you interacted with on your rounds uh, would like seek you out or like try to get you to be the, their caregiver because of your representation or was that just not a not possible um, I think that uh, I can answer that one of two ways I mean in medical school I went to a predominantly white institution for a medical school um, without disclosing their name or whatnot and um, in that particular environment there are certain populations who sought out care from people that looked like them. And there weren't that many that looked like me. And so there were certain situations in which um, we weren't regarded as sought after uh, potential providers in the, in the moments that we would be on rounds. In fact, I had a friend of mine who actually um, faced the, some scathing concerning borderline racial remarks from a patient who did not want him in the room, uh. arguably because of what he looked like uh, being a black male. And so that was something that um, not only him, but other people who looked like him, including myself, had to contend with. And then I would say fast forward, because I would say that it all depends on the space that you're in. And so having received my medical education there, I received my residency education at a HBCU, and so that experience was completely different mm. in terms of being amongst people who looked like me, mentors and patients, and so I had that feeling of empowerment day to day to work hard, to be as good as my mentors, but also make sure that I 
was as good for my patients and what they needed at the time. Um, so I think that I had the, I wouldn't say the, the luxury, but I had those two experiences juxtaposed and really be able to appreciate the racial dynamic that um, someone like myself would have to deal with in those two different spaces to never take anything for granted and just to make sure that I try to remember or, or just be reminded about some of the um, unspoken variables that really have an impact on the way that you interact with patients day to day outside of just the medicine. Yeah. And I think that's an amazing thing to say, because I know that I don't know at what point it became important to me, but that I found providers that look like me, whether it's because, you know, people that don't look like me historically have felt like, oh, well, you know, black women or black people have a higher tolerance for pain and didn't take some of our concerns seriously. So I think for me, it became important to really find black providers and, you know, whether that's an OB or OBGYN or, you know, my, my GP, whatever. And so I don't want to brush over the fact that you created this anti-racism program. So did you have time for that? Were you tasked with that? Like, how did that even get developed? And how are you rolling that out? Um, very good question. Um, so I, obviously, it's a, it's a labor of love. And it's something that, um, again, I owe, or I credit not only myself, but um, mentors and um, residents who kind of formed a, a working group terms of trying to figure out ways in which we can address racism in medicine and try to empower the next generation of physicians with an anti-racism curriculum and how that can impact the quality of care and the lack of equity of care sometimes that exists in the way that we deliver, um, specifically obstetrical and gynecological care in the Bronx. And so um, it was a, a group of, including myself, residents attendings who would meet um, after hours, after we're done working, because we're just very passionate about this and try to figure out ways in which we can kind of bring information in a digestible manner and create a space where people can kind of grapple with these very provocative topics. Um, and I think that we were able to kind of see this thing through because we as a collective knew how important it was. We also had an incredible amount of support from administration in terms of um, supporting us and seeing this thing through. And we also had an engaging group of residents who we piloted this with who were also very interested in finding ways in which they can kind of um, learn of their own implicit biases and how that can inter impact their interaction with patients and impact the delivery of care they receive um, and find ways in which we can educate and learn from each other and undo some of this um, racism that exists in medicine to provide better care for our patients. So I think that um, it was a labor of love and uh, again, and just kudos to the incredible group of people that um, I've had the pleasure of working with to kind of envision this and, and implement it. And again, the, the receptive group that we were able to pilot this with and, and learn a lot from because we all walked into the space knowing that we are not experts, that we ourselves have our own that we need to kind of face and reckon with and, and address and figure out how they can also impact the care that we deliver. And um, we're very uh, committed to going on this journey, despite how uncomfortable it might have been at times, knowing that we all would be better off for it.
So that is great. I guess my, let's take it all the way back to the beginning. Like what made you choose to become a doctor? What is the correct terminology? Do we call you a doctor? Do we call you a physician? And what are some of the myths the general public has about your work? Um, doctor slash physician works just fine. Okay. Um, no preference. <laughs> um, you can even call me Calvin. It doesn't matter. Uh, or JR. It doesn't matter to me. Ain't nobody calling you Jared, but but, but family. <laughs> Facts. That's true. That's true. Um, and so that's that. In terms of, you said something. It was myths. Myths that people had about my. Um, yeah, it's like what I do. Yeah, because I mean, I think I enter as like a physician. Either one. I feel like my my view of an OBGYN is Cliff Huxtable, and then my yeah. view of a physician is that you're rich. Wait, can, hold 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 on one second before we yeah, yeah, yeah. before we jump into your answer. Can we just acknowledge that a Cosby was an OBGYN on the Cosby show? Excuse me, I don't want to be like the yeah we're, yeah. we're not talking about that. Next, yeah, we're not gonna what? Get that's just funny to me. Whatever. Yeah, we're not we're not Cosby. going there. All right. <laughs> But, but anyways, I would say that, uh, I guess people who may not have access or, or know of any doctors personally will rely on information that they find in magazines on TV or whatever they can get their hands of. And I know that at the time when it came to learning more about OBGYNs, one of the, um, the people the individuals that people that was easily recognizable was um, Keith Huxtable in terms of um, his role as an OBGYN. And so understanding that you're the person that delivers the baby. And um, I think that that was the main thing. Like, oh, yeah, you just deliver babies. <laughs> True. Not just. All <laughs> just delivering babies. And I think that for me, uh, growing up and kind of learning about the nuances of reproductive health and reproductive physiology, I became enamored by the fact that it was something way more deeper than that and how um, you're really trying to be an advocate for um, the mother and really working on ways in which you can optimize a positive outcome to arrive at delivery. So I think that for a lot of people, they just see the doctor and they see the delivery happening, but they don't see the process it takes in terms of on both ends, the patient in addition to the provider and then being a team working together to arrive at that beautiful moment, which is birth. Um, I think there's a lot that goes into that. Um, and I think that for me, that's where a lot of the reporting work comes into play when it comes to obstetrics. Um, and I think that when people think of OBs, they forget about the GYN aspect, which is just as important when it comes to providing primary care for, for women in that space. And so I know that when I would talk to folks, oh, you're going to do OBJ? Like, oh, you're going to treat women? You're going to look at that? You're going to look at the babies? And that was it. I'm like, uh, I mean, I guess technically I'm going to do some of those things, but that's not all I'm going to do. Um, so I think that it was important for me to initially being enamored by that idol that is Heathcliff Huskell, this black um, uh, man very um, successful family and 
seeing that as an example, how do I learn more about the process that it takes to get there? And after learning about that, am I really committed to it? Once I've learned that it's not all just delivering baby and the glamour that comes with that, quote unquote glamour. Because trust me, it's not all glamour. There's drama, but it's a, a, a beautiful process nonetheless. So what, what, what made you want to do med school? I think that it was a, I mean, the simple answer is that I was looking for um, something that gave my life meaning and something that I could really uh, wake up every day and try to make a difference. So that was one objective when it came to what am I going to do in life? then how do I try to find something that I truly enjoy that allows me to kind of complete that goal? And me growing up, I was always like a, a nerd when it comes to loving science and biology and that kind of thing. And, and trying to find a way to make that connection between my love of science and making a difference. And um, I think that medicine kind of came, uh, came back each time I would think about the connection between I guess, science and society and finding a profession in which I could combine my love of science and um, my love of people and using whatever skills I can develop to kind of help with making a difference day to day. And so I, for me, it, it always came back to, to medicine. Medicine and teaching, but medicine ended up winning. Um, yeah, I can confirm you are a nerd for sure. <laughs> yeah, yeah um, I mean, it, it is what it is, bro. I mean, we we were twelve, and you know, I would visit your house over the summer, yeah. and uh, you'd be reading medical textbooks at yeah. twelve. I'm like, bro, we yeah. need to watch Bra- Dra- Dragon Ball Z. And you're just sitting there reading medical textbooks. So, <laughs> I don't think I was reading medical textbooks at the age of twelve, though. No, I was it there. Was medical, uh, it's, no, it wasn't medical textbooks. It was the fact that so during the summertime we would be able to get our textbooks for the following academic year. And so my parents would always go to the Union Free District School District, pick up our textbooks, and we'd have them in the house. And me just being a, a curious individual, I'd open up some of the science textbooks, and I would start reading them. And be like, oh, this shit is cool. No, uh, I vaguely remember you. I vaguely remember you picking up some of your mom's books. Because your oh, mom's yeah, a nurse. Absolutely. Yeah. That too. Okay. Exactly. I, I, ju- I just want to let you know, Calvin, that that telling that story doesn't make you sound any less nerdy. No, I mean, <laughs> just, I did, just, just, just I FYI. No, that 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 solidified it. I mean, <laughs> listen, I, you got to learn to embrace who you are. I know back in the day, I was like, man, I'm a herb. All I do is read books, blah blah. blah. I'm not gonna be able to um, have friends, but have a social life. But I think that once you own that space, like, yo, that's just who I am, and I love it. Uh, and I moved past it. Um, my the question is whether or not I'll have that same feeling when I see um, my uh, child <gasps> in terms of, is that cool? That was me back then? Oh, shoot, I was definitely a nerd. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Well, you, you beat us to the next question, but you are a physician, your wife is a physician, and you're expecting your first child. Congratulations. Oh, oh my gosh. I, I, I did it, I did it. You did it. So <laughs> I think, again, you've got visions for having a baby and that's a whole other podcast in terms of what your future child is going to look like. But what is it like having two physicians in the family? Like I have visions of you guys at the good dinner table talking about like hypertension and CPD <laughs> and like, what? It, what is it like having two physicians in the family? 
potentially three. It's, it's pretty cool, actually. I would say that we try to limit the doctor talk at home because, um, you know, we have an opportunity to not think about medicine outside of work. So we want to make sure that we preserve some sanity and love of the job by not oversaturating the conversation with medicine, medicine at home, medicine at work. Um, but I would say that for like the first hour when we're both home, we like to decompress, we like to talk about like some highlights of the day as far as like, oh, I saw this patient with this, or I saw this patient with that. Um, uh, my wife, Bianca, she loves to uh, talk to me about, oh yeah, I saw this pregnant patient, and we we'll kind of talk about how would you manage this particular patient in terms of me as an OBGYN. Um, so we have these moments in which we kind of just talk about, uh, I guess, some of the highlights of our, our job because I think that that gives us an opportunity to kind of reflect back on like, oh man, this is something we sought out to do and we're actually doing it, which sometimes you fail to really appreciate when you're doing the day-to-day -day work and, and encountering some of the stressors that come with uh, the job, virtually any job, uh, but particularly with respect to medicine, um, the stressors that come with managing a patient and, and being an advocate for the patient and contending with some of the anxieties that family members may have about the condition of their loved ones. So I think that for us, it's an opportunity for us to kind of um, remind ourselves why we're doing what we're doing, um, but then also remind ourselves of our uh, humanness in terms of we're, we're not perfect, and then also remind ourselves that, yo, we are nerds because we're sitting here at 7 o'clock in the evening talking about hypertension and medications and management when people are probably doing something a little bit more exciting, like <laughs> watching the, the TV show on Netflix or outside with a beer, kicking it back. Um, but I love it. I love it. All right, now Jared. Follow, you, follow you, up. You got the last What's question, bro. Oh, the last question. Yes. Um, yeah, man. All right. Good. I, I do have to end with a heavy question then. Uh, oh, being, wow. Being that... Uh, the Supreme Court recently overturned Roe v. Wade. And with that, I have. I know the question. I got to find out your your perspective on this. I'm sorry. Okay. Um, uh, how how is that gonna? How do you see that impacting the demographic that you aim to to see on a daily basis? Um. I think it's definitely going to impact. I mean, we, we, we know there's been studies, there have been countless articles that have discussed and disclosed that the reversal of Roe versus Wade is, is going to disproportionately affect um, black and brown communities in which um, access is going to be, or lack thereof access, is going to be even more burdensome. Um, and what I will say is that we're fortunate enough, we being the people Bronx and of New York City and of New York State to be in a position in which uh, that type of mindset when it comes to providing equitable and accessible abortion care doesn't necessarily exist um, in New York State, that there are opportunities, a number of opportunities for people to get access to abortion care. Um, but what I do worry about is, number one, how much of that fervor behind the reversal will empower and embolden other people um, in the political space to further change the way that people think about abortion care in New York State and ultimately kind of swing the pendulum in a different direction. And number two, obviously those people who aren't privileged enough to live in a state that provides um, 
abortion care, what are they going to do? What lengths are they going to have to go through? And what kind of um, additional stressors they're going to face because they're going to be in situations in which they cannot access care, safe care, um, and have to either consider the encountering the economical toll of having to travel long distances to find places that will uh, allow them to uh, seek out abortions. And also thinking about what kind of information is going to be accessible to them in social media. I already talked to you earlier about how we always are faced with some of the wealth of information people have access to, let alone now people feeling more charged with um, this reversal to kind of put out different pieces of information regarding um, discouraging folks, I would say, to, to get abortion or even kind of uh, putting out untruths about the process of abortion. I know a couple of colleagues of mine were talking about someone who had posted an article that was misleading about ways in which you can undo abortion um, after taking uh, a medication or if you choose to take the medical medication approach to having an abortion. And that's unfounded with respect to evidence and how people who may not necessarily have opportunities to access a healthcare provider to interpret some of those information are then being inundated with um, a lot of facts, quote unquote, or lies that are gonna further perpetuate this idea or this fear and stigma behind what is arguably just a question of a full spectrum of reproductive healthcare that everyone should be entitled to. And so I, I say all that to say that it's more incumbent upon ever for us as providers to continue to navigate the, the spaces in which we are present in and need to be present in, specifically when it comes to social media and trying to defend and refute some of the ideas and messages that are out there about abortion care. And then also understanding our role in addition to physicians um, being members or citizens in this great country to work on empowering leaders in office or electing leaders in office who understand the importance of a woman's right to full reproductive health care, which includes the right to choose um, to have an abortion versus not having an abortion, or the right to just choose what they deem to be best for their family, uh, which is no one else's right but the individual themselves. Oh. I will not be ready for office. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you have the smile too. You should definitely, definitely consider in the future. No, I love this, and and thank you so much for tackling this this subject that we did not prepare you for, but answering that question beautifully. So, um, we definitely are so excited that you are our first guest for Siblings Take On. You did an awesome job. Um, Ooh, thank you. Yay, Jared! Any closing remarks? Uh, no, thank you uh, for, uh, for, 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 for being on. Um, the end. Yeah, the end. I'm out. All right. Thanks, guys. Bye. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Siblings Take On. 
Be sure to rate and subscribe anywhere you receive your podcast. If you have any questions, concerns, or recommendations for future topics, feel free to send it to us at siblingstakeonpodcast at gmail.com. Have a great day.